The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. So, Maureen, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Who said every action has its equal opposite reaction? Oh, that's so funny. That's a lyric from uh, from Hamilton, which I'm actually going to see tonight. Hamilton? Like, not Hamilton, Ontario. No, no, no. Hamilton the Musical. It's it's a, it's a line. For, Thomas Jefferson sings it about Alexander Hamilton having George Washington on his side. There you go. Wasn't it Newton originally? Wade Newton? <laughs> no, Sir Isaac Newton. You know, the third law of motion for every action in nature, an opposite reaction. But it kind of works in politics, too. Do go on. Tell me more. So, Maureen, <laughs> uh, to put it simply, it's I guess it's why we swing back and forth. You know, any major shift in government, particularly in a democratic government, uh, there's a backlash. It spawns counter backlashes. That's how America ended up with Donald Trump after Barack Obama. That's how it happened. And then Biden after Trump. Or closer to home, Doug Ford after Kathleen Wynne. Yeah, and then John Tory after after Doug's brother Rob Ford. That there's a reaction, action reaction. Yeah, well, about that. Well, who would have ever thought that after Rob Ford's shenanigans, it would be John Tory's career that would end in scandal? I would not have backed that horse. Well, maybe men will be men, except you know when they're women. Well, this brings us to the topic of women leaders, right? A growing number of women in power and not just in politics, women in in business are leaving their jobs. There's Yacinda Ardern, the former prime minister of, of New Zealand, who said she had nothing left in the tank. Yeah, Nicola Sturgeon, who talked about brutality in modern politics. Women leaders in every sector are leaving their big jobs. They're calling it the big breakup, whoever they are. That's here. We thought we were closing the gender gap. We thought we were getting somewhere. Well, I don't know. It's not the end of time, but we'll see. But but it is kind of like how we started this whole thing. You know, like I was saying that every action has an equal reaction. You didn't say that. Fig Newton said that. <laughs> I don't think it was Fig Newton. <laughs> but... We're going to have Kathleen Wynn on. Yes. Who better to have on this podcast this week, especially to talk about all these things and more? Yeah. So Kathleen Wynn, she joins us. And if you've been watching, if you're a paid subscriber and you can see video, you can see she's got long hair. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Maureen. Hi. Well, this is a tumultuous time. I was going to uh, ask you how things are, you know, post-retirement, but you wrote a very interesting article this week about John Tory, a very personal article. So why don't we just jump in and get your take as you expressed it? I think, Maureen, we should tell people that, like, basically, John Tory, he's kind of a big wig in, in politics, right? He was like, I first knew him when he ran the Mulvaney campaign 100,000 years ago. And then he tried to he tried to be premier. He ended up as mayor. And then he was like this big family guy, married to this wonderful woman and talked all, was always posting pictures about his kids and stuff. And then he had to quit because it was revealed by the Toronto Star that he had been basically cavorting with a member of his staff and he's 69 and she's 31. So then Kathleen, you wrote something. So tell us, why did you write that piece? You know, my political story is kind of bound up with John Tory's at, at certain points. Um, you guys know that 
In 2007, I had just been appointed Minister of Education, and we were heading into an election a year later, and John Tory decided he was going to come in and run against me in my riding. And I beat him, and that was that was when you know he he left politics after that. He ran in another in a by election and didn't win. So we had a very we had a very competitive relationship, obviously, because we went head to head. But we became friends after that. We worked together really well. It wasn't a dirty campaign in my riding. Uh, he's a decent guy. I like to think I'm a decent person. And so we we got through that. And then when he was mayor of Toronto and I was premier. Um, we had a pretty good working relationship. There were a couple of points where he wasn't very happy with me. You know, I didn't go along with road tolls on the Gardner and the Don Valley Parkway. And there were some things like that. But generally, we worked very well together and had a good political relationship. He and I are exactly the same age. He was born in 1954. I was born in 1953. And I've, I've watched this I will say shocking story unfold over the last couple of weeks. And I, and I felt that it was important for me to say something. I felt that because I had lived through the same, the same time period and watched the same changes happen in terms of social norms and sexual mores, I just felt like I needed to say something. And the, the title of the article was This Conversation is Bigger Than John Tory. For me, it's not about the individual, you know, it's about how on earth a story that is unfolding in 2023 could be so similar to stories that some of us have lived 30, 40 years ago, you know? And so I told a personal story about myself when I was 21, got into a, a short-lived relationship with a, a guy who was 30 years older than I was and had power over me because he was a senior reporter at a very small community newspaper. I was selling classified ads and basically, he should have known better. I was 21. I, you know, I can take some responsibility and I do, but he was 30 years older than I was. And I felt that he was being good to me. He was letting me do some writing on the paper and I, I felt kind of beholden to him. So it just got to me as I watched this story unfold with John that we just haven't moved as far as we should have, you know, and that's, that's why I felt like I needed to write that. Do you think he should have resigned? Well, you know, he stood up on that Friday night and he said he was going to resign. So whatever was going on in his moral code, he had decided that he should resign. We, you know, we may never know the whole story. Who knows? But he felt that he had done something that was serious enough and took responsibility for it and said he was going to resign. And then what happened was it started to roll out and all these voices coming in saying, mostly from men, saying, oh, don't go, you know, you're a good guy, John Tory should stay, we're going to try to convince you to stay. And I feel, and this is my bias, but I feel that a lot of those people are probably trying to, not that they're covering their own backsides, but they are trying to hold on to a, a norm that is more comfortable for them than watching their friend having to step down. And that that got to me too, because that's what perpetuates these kinds of behaviors. So many different people, and not just people who work for him, and obviously they would have an interest in the guy sticking around. But I went back and did some reading because, you know, I was on the Hill a thousand years ago, and I'm 
I saw lots of things and lots of things happened that shouldn't have happened. And I didn't speak up, but I just kept, you know, I wasn't assaulted or anything, but, but there was lots of shit around. And I went back and I read stuff about, I guess there were people in the NDP caucus who were outed at the time and as having done inappropriate things. And there was a quote of someone saying, well, it used to be okay, but now it's not okay. (laughs) And someone said, yeah, but it was never, it was never really okay. It was just, it was said to be okay. Mm -hmm. So was it, have times really changed? I, I, I don't know. And you talk to different people and they're just like, well, the the young woman probably got something out of it. We know, Maureen and I know people who are madly in love and there's 30 years difference. Like, are there clear rules? The 30 year difference. I mean, you know, I know people who are married to people 30 years older than they are, and but they didn't necessarily work together. They weren't in a relation, in a power relationship. That's the part that I think made it clearer that he needed to step down because he had direct control, as I understand it, over her career trajectory and her job. And that creates a dynamic that's, I don't think it's healthy. You know, I don't think, I don't think it should be allowed. And I think we've moved. Yes. But I did a, I did a session with some young people last night who were asking questions about the political process and so on. And I talked about this issue a little bit because it came up and, you know, one of the young women said, it just hasn't changed that much. You know, she felt that she was in her like early thirties, I guess. And she said, she just didn't think that young women were not experiencing this kind of, uh, this kind of situation. And it's not, it's not just young women. I know there are, there are young men who have been in these situations as well, but it's, it's often young women. There's so much about the Tory scandal that you can unpack. I hate the word unpack, but here we are unpacking. It's not just the age difference. And it's not just the fact that he was her boss. It is that he was an elected official. And, you know, I was thinking about the David Letterman story. Remember Lowe these many years ago? He went on a show and explained that he'd been having an affair with a younger staff member. And it was a big scandal. But there was never an expectation that he would give up his job. And he put himself ahead of the story and then it disappeared. And here here am I bringing it up all these years later. But I think it's very important to remember that Tory stepped down because he was an elected official and might not have had he been in another business. But Maureen, do you think today, if Letterman were in the same situation, do you think it would be the same? Do you think he would not, there would not be pressure on him to step down? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. I mean, it's show business, it's politics. The two are not dissimilar, but I think there certainly would be less uh, you know, Letterman made a lot of money for, for his network. And, uh, there's that to keep in mind as well. Right. Well, I think a lot of it is, um, and here's my great opinion, I was never premier, but I think a lot of it is what you stood for. And he presented himself as the big family man. And then, I don't know, he, his wife was often there, his kids were often there. So I think, you know, like Donald Trump was able to do all kinds of things with women and get away with it and still hold on to his popularity. But but other people were like, this is like ridiculous. And they would get canceled for doing, you know, for having like a bad date. I'm exaggerating perhaps. But so I don't know if there is, I don't know if there is a set line and I don't know if there should be a set line. But I certainly, like I found it really interesting, Kathleen, that you were writing about what happened to you in 1974. Like people are, that's I guess why Maureen and I love doing this podcast is that we, we're hearing so much more. I mean, we're going to move into politics in general in a minute, but 
I don't think I've ever heard you tell that story about what happened when you were 21. I've never told that story. In fact, my kids didn't know the story. I had to sort of send the piece to them ahead of time and say, I'm going to write about this because it feels like it's relevant. And I don't remember all the details of my life when I was 21, but I sure as hell remember that, you know, so... Um, so I, I felt like it was important. I think what you're saying too, Wendy, about the, um, the hypocrisy, I think that is, that's an important piece for an elected official, right? When you hold yourself up as one thing and you're actually something else or you're living a different life. I think that's an added layer when you are being held to a higher standard. And people have come back to me after reading the article and said, yeah, elected officials have to be held to a higher standard. And that's just, that's the way it is. But what has encouraged me is that most of the people who've gotten back to me after I wrote the article are young people. And they've said, thank you for writing it. It was important. And you know what, if it helps one young person put it in context, then I think that's, that's a good thing, because it's a confusing world, you know, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on the Hill for there. When I was there a thousand years ago, there weren't very many young women that I think it was 90% men. And yeah, I mean, you just, well, Maureen, you've, you've done it. You just sort of, you push ahead. You just mm-hmm. do your thing and you say to, to some guy who's acting like an asshole, you're an asshole, back off. And it's just life and life goes on. So I think, I think it is good that there is a certain hypocrisy, I think, in some people being punished more than others as a different kind of hypocrisy. But I think it's good that we're saying, no, you, you can't do that. That is inappropriate. But <laughs> it is good. But this sort of brings us to the other part of this conversation that I'd love to hear from Kathleen about. And that's when you enter public life and, you know, you weren't always in, but when you did, it was at a different stage in your career. You'd come out, you were with your partner, Jane. When you go into politics slash public life, you know that you have to be an open book. And even if you are, you have to be ready to withstand absolutely unfair criticism. And for you in particular, not just a woman, but as a gay woman, you had to know that it was going to be brutal. And it was. Yeah. And, you know, I made very sure that I gathered my family around me. I first ran for office in 1994. That was kind of the my step into the political realm. It was for school board and it was local. Um, it was a different stage. But it still meant that in the community, my kids were dealing with the fact that there was going to be a homophobic response. There were going to be flyers, you know, put door to door calling me an extremist lesbian. And all of that happened. I always said I, I objected more to being called extremist than being called a lesbian. <laughs> One was true and one wasn't. (laughs) Is an extremist lesbian? That's what I want to know. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, you know, you know that, and there's no point in whining about it. And that notion that you just push through, and the way you guys are describing in your profession, having to just, you know, to a certain extent, take a certain amount of shit and go through it. Like you have to go through it, and that is a conversation I have with young people all the time. I I say to them, you know, when I was 16. I thought by the time I was 70, nearly 70, things would be really different. They're not that different. And so I'm not going to promise you that by the time you're out trying to make your way, that it's all going to be fixed. It's not. And so what you need to know is that it's worth it. You know, it's really worth it to push through and do the things that you can do and have the amazing experiences in whatever sector you're in, whatever field you're in, take risks, put yourself in uncomfortable positions in terms of, you know, honing your skills, 
and make a difference. That's all worth it. But as you go, there still are things that you can say, this isn't right. And I'm going to do something about this in this moment. Like when I was premier and the whole Me Too, Gian Gomeshi, all that, that time period. I mean, I gathered my policy people around me and I said, this is ridiculous. It is 2000 and whatever, 15, 14. We need to do something in response to this. And so we put a new policy in place called It's Never Okay. We put money into the violence against women sector. We ran an ad that basically said, if you're not with her, you're against her, you know, you're not helping. And we, we made changes to supports in the court system because it just felt like I couldn't sit back with the lived experience that I had and not act when I had university students sitting around a table telling me that on their campuses there were no harassment policies, that the students had no input into those. And so we wrote into legislation that that had to be done. So So I think that those moments make it worth it, you know, not whining about it, but there are ways to shine a light on what's not working, still not working. The Women of Ill Repute. Well, we mentioned uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Jacinda Ardern, who both quit, both women who've been very, very, both one in New Zealand and one leading the legislature in, uh, in Scotland. And they both quit saying that it's toxic, basically, that it's it's brutal, it's intense, and they just don't have it in the tank. So I was struck by two things, like, is this a comment on social media? Hello. And is it just women who are using those? Like, is it a woman thing? Is it a social media thing? Uh, I don't know. What, what do you think about those two women stepping down? First of all, I think social media has made it a whole lot worse. If I look at, you know, 1994 to now, there's a whole different environment because of social media, for sure. I think those women were being honest. You know, I think they were telling the truth. That is the truth for a whole lot of people in uh, in the political realm. I think to some extent, Nicola Sturgeon for sure, but uh, probably Arden as well, felt that they had they had done all they could to push against the forces that were pushing back at them. I, what do I know? I mean, I, I admire both of them, actually, so I, I don't know. But I just felt that they were telling the truth. And instead of saying, I'm quitting because I want to spend more time with my family, right, <laughs> which is definitely what they will do, but that, you know, that's kind of a tired phrase and doesn't show the pressure, right? And I think that they, I think they wanted to broaden that discussion and just make sure that people understood that there was something else going on, then they were just tired. And, you know, not having enough gas in the tank, there are reasons for that. And I think, you know, what they're both saying is one of the reasons is that this is just so hard on everybody in my life and on me. It's not just women in politics, though. There's, I want to say, a Kinsey report. It's McKinsey, isn't it? The, the, the pollsters of the number of women in senior management and corporate and the corporate world, leaving their jobs over the last two years has increased compared to men. So it's not just a political problem. And in a way, I mean, going back to, to Newton and everything, you know, every action has a reaction. It's women have come so far that I suppose we shouldn't be surprised, given the way things go, that there would be that, oh, okay, now that now that I've achieved what I want to achieve, maybe it's not as worth it as I thought it might be, or maybe there's just, or maybe I just don't have enough in the tank. 
this is not anything that I have any hard evidence on, but I wonder how COVID has put things in context for women, but for everybody. I think it's put in, I think it's put a lot of things in context for people, but, but I wonder if what we know to be the case that women carry the cumulative burden of a family, right? So you, you have the work outside the home. And even if you're a high powered executive, you're doing a lot of the emotional work of the family. And I wonder if, COVID was, for some people, the straw that just broke the back, you know, and made it clear that, to use your language, maybe it, maybe it wasn't worth it or it was just time to do something else. I wonder about that because I think it was a very hard time. I mean, I watched, I watched so many young families try to manage their kids at home and uh, all the isolation of home of the online schooling and trying to make sure your kids were okay and trying to trying to make sure everybody was okay and to do that on top of a high powered position i mean that's a big that's a big load right so i wonder if there's an element of that because of the time period that we're talking about I just found it interesting, and, and maybe this is me with my woman hat on instead of my person hat. Um, I was just struck by how our friends Nicola and uh, Jacinda spoke about, instead of saying, I want to spend more time with my family, said, it's freaking brutal. It's brutal, and I have nothing left in the tank. I don't, I don't think we normally hear that. Not from men, certainly. So there is something different there. I mean, I, I, or, or maybe everybody is just starting to approach things differently. Well, I mean, what's different about it is that it is, it's more unvarnished truth than we're used to yeah. from an elected official standing at a microphone. You know, that's not what we expect to hear. So good on them for, for saying that. Will it change now? Will it all be? <laughs> yeah, it'll all be fixed. <laughs> Done. It won't, but it, you know, it, it'll give people some pause. I mean, the danger is that it discourages people, right? Mm-hmm. It discourages women, discourages young people from getting into political life. And that's, that scares me actually, because we so need a diversity of voices at the table and one group that is still way underrepresented is women. And so it, it really does, it does worry me. So I hope, I hope there's another chapter for both those um, women where they can, you know, they can talk about how great it was to do the things that they did so that people can hear that as well, because it's a bit of a, you know, it's a sad message that they were kind of drummed out of political life. I don't think that's exactly what they said, but you could take that away from their announcements, right? What about you yourself, Kathleen? Would you still be in office had you been given the choice? Uh, I would have loved another term, Maureen. You know, I was elected leader in 2013. We had a minority government, worked with the NDP, got one budget passed, and then was elected to a majority in 2014. I would love to have had 2018 to 2022 to finish the things that we were doing. Highly likely that at the end of that, I would have stepped down. You know, I mean, it's I would have had two terms. That's kind of what I had in my head as the ideal, but twas not to be. So you deal with the hand that you're given. So... I'd be almost gone or gone by now. <laughs> almost gone. Well, you, yeah, you would have been a wartime premier too, to paraphrase, because you would have been dealing with COVID as well. And people say to me, aren't you glad you weren't there for that? And no, the answer is no, I'm not glad I wasn't there because 
I would have done things differently. That's the reality. So I wish I had been there. I wish you had been too. (laughs) I found really interesting reading about Nicola Sturgeon that she was a big defender of of trans people's rights um, and that the way that she defended that and was not perfect, it went viral. And you, a huge part of your plank was changing sex ed. And people were like, no, like just... So I guess it raises the whole question of what's right and wrong in politics. Like, do you push people ahead because that's how you affect change and sometimes change is needed? Or do you listen to what people want and do what the people want? I don't know. I'm sure it's way more complicated than that, but. Well, the reality is that you you have to balance those things, right? You have to weigh the evidence of a policy with the promises that you've made and your your own ideology. And then you do have to listen to people outside of government. And that can mean knowledgeable people who have information because they're on the front line in a particular area. It can also mean the people who are mad about something or who, you know, who are rising up. But on the issue of the sex ed curriculum changes, what we know is that a curriculum from 1998 was not good enough. It was fine for a lot of people. Well, it was fine for a lot of people, but a lot of those people had never read it and didn't, you know, hadn't thought through that kids didn't have phones. They weren't on the internet. It wasn't cyberbullying. Like all that stuff didn't even exist in 1998. So, so they may have been fine with the sex ed curriculum, but they really weren't dealing with the realities of what was going on in their kids' lives. So, But the other part of that is that there was a very vocal minority and homophobia and sexism and transphobia, those are real things that exist in our world. And so the very loud voices that were led by people like Charles McVitie, who's a, you know, a deeply homophobic guy, those were the voices that we heard. And we knew from polling that had been done and information we had about public opinion, that the vast majority of people in the province were fully supportive of a new sex ed curriculum. The parents in the province were supportive. And in fact, when Doug Ford came into office, he had campaigned as to be leader on repealing the uh, the sex ed curriculum that we had brought in. He got into office, he looked around repealed it for, you know, 10 minutes and found out that actually it was very popular and people were saying it was needed and put basically the same curriculum right back in. So, you know, if I had listened to those voices and had not done what I knew was the right thing, that would have been very wrong in that situation because all of the all of the pieces were in place and kids were at risk. And I think that's the same thing with Arden. Trans people were and are at risk. And so, if your mission for being in political life is to make life better for people and, and make our society safer for everybody, then there are certain things that you have to do, even if there's a small and vocal opposition to it, right? There's also the issue of the so-called LGBTQ plus community. And the, we, when we say that, we're implying that anybody, whether you're gay or trans or asexual, that you're part of some group that has a common agenda. And from what I understand, you know, as a cisgendered straight woman, there are commonalities, but there are just as many differences. There are gay people who are transphobic. There are, you know, queer people who are, well, they all seem to be, if they've got a problem within the community, transphobia seems to be more rampant than anything else. But have you, I mean, have you run into this yourself? The fact that it isn't a unified voice, it isn't one group that can lobby for change. Quite often there are 
you know, fractions or factions uh, within it. For sure. I remember when I came out, I was 37 when I came out and I remember going to events in the, in the community. So I really wasn't of the community. You know, I was living in North Toronto with my three kids, with my husband at the time, Jane and her partner were our very close friends. And so I had a little window into the community, but the community is very diverse. There are lots of people who have very weird opinions about how you become a member of the community. I remember one time being at an event with Jane and uh, some young lesbian saying to saying to Jane that you couldn't be a real lesbian if you didn't play hockey. <laughs> and Jane was like, what the hell? She doesn't even skate. <laughs> Like, it was just this most ridiculous moment. Like the stereotype. Give me back your card. You don't get to be one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's as diverse as the rest of the population. And and I was I would say to her, how can these women, how can they vote for Mike Harris? What the hell are they thinking? You know? So, yeah, just as diverse. And there, there are very few, as you, as you guys know from your work, there are very few monolithic communities of any kind right so the individual differences and the the pockets of dissent i mean we have to you know we have to navigate that all the time no matter who we are i think we gotta wrap up in a couple of minutes but i'm just wondering like you had like a kind of a big job um you ran like <laughs> a massive economy in north america and like what do you do now? Do you just like, do you boss Jane around? Like, what, what, what do you do? <laughs> no, no, she's the boss. <laughs> she's the boss. <laughs> we moved out of the city. I stayed after I lost in 2018. I stayed in the legislature and then uh, we moved out of the city. We're northwest of Toronto now in Alliston. Built a house with my youngest daughter. So we've got an intergenerational living situation. And I'm honestly, Wendy, I'm trying to figure that out. How I can be of the most use, you know, because I want to, I want to, I want to use that experience that I had to answer questions. That's basically how I think of it. And so I'm teaching a course at U of T, um, one in the fall and one in the winter. I answer requests to go and speak with young people. It's mostly young people who I want to interact with because they have questions about what it's like. And there are lots of myths about political life, you know, and one of them is that it's toxic every day, all day. And it's not, it's a lot of fun. Like there are great, great moments in, in political life. And, and so I want to, I want to encourage people in the democratic process, because I think we're at a dangerous moment in our democracy. You know, you know, you're in journalism and you're, you're watching the, changes that we're dealing with in terms of information and misinformation and how do we how do we work through that well that has an impact on our democratic process and so i want people to care about that so i basically go where people are uh, wanting to ask questions about that and try to try to peel back the curtain a little bit on what it's like to make a decision you know just things like there are no policies that everybody agrees with you always have to Find a way to educate people, bring people along, um, work with the people who have the knowledge. And that's how that's how policy gets made. And it's an imperfect process. But I think more people need to understand that. Wow. Thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you for spending some time with us, Kathleen. It's been an absolute pleasure. And just listening to you, I really I miss you in politics, even if you don't miss being in it that much. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got, if not another big act, then several little ones ahead of you. Well, thank you for having me on. I I feel honored to be considered even a little bit a woman of ill repute. I think that's the best kind of woman. You know? No problem. Yeah, I really <laughs> you got it sewn it. up. And I love I love what you guys are doing. This is a this is a great it's a great endeavor. So thank you. Well, we're thrilled. We wanted you to come on from the very beginning, but it's just just you know it's important to get a really nice mix of people. And and I just thought your thoughts on what it's like as a woman in politics these days would be really interesting. And, and, and John Tory, I'm sure is uh, going through his own rough spot right now. You went through one uh, a while ago, which was, uh, I think you would say was not inflicted in the same way, but, uh, oh, well, he had fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) you know, I think just about everybody who reaches a leadership position I'm going to say in politics, but I think in other uh, spheres as well, there's a, there's a healing, there's a transition process that happens afterwards when you leave. And we have to be honest about that. And there's an adjustment period. So I feel for John as a human being because he's going through a very rough time right now. And who knows? We, we inflict pain on ourselves. We have pain inflicted on us. And that's, that's kind of the human condition. And I don't mean to be all philosophical, but that is, that is kind of the reality. So. Thank you for doing your bit to help us talk about these things. Oh, well, it's our pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's been lovely to speak to you. And uh, yeah, the long hair is very cool. Well, <laughs> stay tuned. Who knows how long it'll last? We'll see. Did you vote for Kathleen Wynne? Oh, well, this you don't is have a to answer. Can of worms. I don't vote, which. You know, I was a journalist for a thousand years and I first, when I was like a child, I moved to Quebec and I thought, well, there's a a referendum happening. I just moved here. I don't think that my opinion is really important and I'm not going to vote as an Anglophone and I'm certainly not a Francophone. So I didn't vote. And then I moved to Ottawa and I've been covering. Yeah, I know. And my husband is like, this is your democratic right. You need to make a difference. So I'm not, I, I, I'm shocked. <laughs> you yeah, can see we'll I'm shocked. We'll have to do this another yeah. time. Yeah, all that time on the Hill. And she never, <laughs> I did, I had no idea that you were, I mean, you're political, but you're apolitical. That's, that's why I take pride in the fact that I've never missed an election of any kind from federal to cottage municipal. I think I'm free. I think I could probably vote. I just wish I could get excited. Well, I know that's usually the case. You know, I don't respect people who say, oh, I can't can't be bothered. But if you make a conscious decision not to vote, I guess I respect that, too. Well, that's what I say anyway. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) She was amazing. I'm so glad. I was worried that... You know, people go through politics and we were sort of warned, well, careful, she can be a little political. And she was at the end or her sort of government can fix everything kind of thing shone through Mm -hmm. at the end. But Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, I'm still thinking of, she wrote that piece about when she was 21 years old and feeling like a failure and feeling like this guy could really help my career. And he's 30 years older than me and he's not going to do anything. And so, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll go to his apartment or whatever because you know he's old so that will never and then of course it wasn't that way at all but i i just think of her telling her kids yeah like, all yeah this 
telling her kids about letting your kids see under the curtain. (laughs) Oh, I mean, that's a that's a tough one in itself. You know, writing about your past or most kids. I don't think my kids have any interest in in me outside of the vision of their mom that they have. I'm if I try to tell them something, quite often they're like, "Whoa, no, that's okay. Too much information." So, so yeah, that must have been something. I try not to talk about her too much, but she recently told me that uh, my mother. I was raised you know, by my mother alone, we were very close, blah, blah, blah. And that my mother, when she was entering dementia, told our daughter, uh, her granddaughter, top secret, but my husband, your grandfather, he was gay. And like, Kate thought that that was like a huge secret. And she came to tell me and I'm like, well, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Kate didn't know until your mother was dying. I think she was like nine, but I didn't tell people because it was my mom's secret. And maybe when she was older, I would have told her. She was like, I think Nana's really lost it because she said that her husband was gay. And I'm like, so, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I think there are certain things that you keep from your kids for various reasons until a certain age. And then you tell them. Well, you know, my mother wasn't in a same sex relationship at the end of her life. But my mother was also kind of homophobic. <laughs> it was like really weird, you know. That generation was no, of course not. So it's uh, yeah, all these secrets, and she probably she's probably feel that that's her spinning in her grave right now because I am actually saying this in public. Good thing she's cremated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I, in the ground, they have the same memories as of yeah, when. Yes. Another big discussion. That's even bigger than not voting. But no uh, kidding. I'm really glad that we talked to Kathleen Wynn, and I'm really glad that she was uh, as frank. Like the John Tory thing is, is you know whether like I first met him when he was running Brian Mulroney's campaign, and I was working on the Hill, and he was running the '88 election. And then I learned that he was only a few years older than me, and I was like, "What? How would you do that?" That's you know we didn't we don't have time today, uh, but that the older thing and the lack of sex appeal. This I mean, I felt bad for him. It's one thing to lose your job and your wife because you had an affair, but then to have the world go, well, you know what? You're not really that sexy. It's just adding insult to injuries. This is not a happy time for John Tory, I'm sure, on any level. But uh, yeah, it was great to talk to Kathleen. What a lovely, charming, and warm and intelligent woman uh, person she is. And uh, yeah, a nice addition to the lineup. Yeah. So are we going to go back to Newton? Vic Newton? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I am going to Hamilton tonight. (laughs) I'll see you later. The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.